You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. My guest today is Emmy Wright Glenn. She is the author of two books. Her first book is Birth, Breath, and Death, Meditations on Motherhood, Chaplaincy, and Life as a Doula. Her second book is Holding Space on Loving, Dying, and Letting Go. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Could you give us a little background? Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town in Utah in the 70s and 80s. I was born in 1973, and I was born in a Mormon family, so I'm the oldest of seven children. And I really, to this day, feel at home in the mountains of Utah. Those big Rocky Mountains are woven into the fabric of who I am. So how did your journey begin to become the person you are today? Well, that's a question that I think we could ask any human being. The tapestry of life has many threads. And there's the thread of my, you know, the influence of my parents, the influence of my schooling, the influence of my own intuition, my own soul, dear friendships that continue to nourish me today. And all the books I read, oh, I love to read. <laughs> so I, I will say that the authors and the books that are dear to me also were like compasses, you know, that I held in my hand and helped guide me on the map of life to find the, the path I chose, which led me to chap- hospital chaplaincy work. You know, I've been involved in death care and writing about grief and loss for quite a few years now. Your first book, Birth, Breath, and Death, what was the motivation behind that wonderful piece of work? My son, my little son, who had, who had been born not, not long before I started writing that book. And it's just magical to be in the company of such a small, you know, thoughtful, intuitive child. And I think all children are such. So as the mother of this incredible being, I would just be overcome by the wonder of it and words would come to me. And so he would fall asleep and I would have these words that would come into my heart and mind. And as I started to write, it it formulated into Birth, Breath and Death, which was the first book I published. So in it, you share some of your journey. How did your journey, especially to chaplaincy, begin? That's a great question. And it, I, I mean, I think of either hospice or hospital chaplaincy, perhaps as a, I imagine it, let's say, as, you know, a, a building that's full of many rooms. And there's lots of doorways into that building. Some people come in through the trainings they do in preparation for ministry, right? And they may have a requirement for doing a clinical pastoral education unit as part of their path to ministry. And other people come into chaplaincy work, perhaps through the mental health door. Maybe their hospice experience was first rooted in social work or being a therapist. And then there's people who may be coming into this work because of their own loss experience. They may have been at the bedside of someone they they love very dearly and 
that opened up this sense that I want to be of service in the realm of grief. And for me, it really came through, in some sense, an academic door at first. I was teaching at the Lawrenceville School, which is a boarding school in New Jersey. And I taught a course there for over 10 years called Myth and Ritual. And that course, we had a unit on creation myths and then myths about um, death and dying. And then the rituals that people in all these cultures may have around the birth of a baby or funeral rituals. And I was so in love with that course and the students, of course, that uh, I felt drawn to explore it more deeply. I became a birth doula and I described this story in Birth, Breath and Death. And then I really felt called to also know what it's like to be present when death happens. And chaplaincy felt like such a natural fit because I've already been teaching and studying comparative religion. And so I was accepted into the clinical pastoral education program at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in New Brunswick. And that program was so well taught and so inspiring. And to this day, the people I met there inspire me to continue my work now. Yeah, it's amazing. I come from Africa, and I remember when I was a child, most of the women in the family were midwives. You know, they really helped give birth. They helped the community a lot. And I find it to be such a powerful spiritual moment. How did your journey begin to be a doula? Well, I'll credit my sister, Rachel, because uh, Rachel contacted me in her pregnancy when she was pregnant with her first girl. And she was separating from her husband at the time and asked if she could come live with, with me and have the support that I could offer through the birth. And so, of course, she was welcome. She came and lived um, in New Jersey. And at one point, she said, I, I want you to be my birth partner. And I started going with her to her midwifery appointments. And I thought, oh, goodness, I don't know how how to do this. You know, I had never been to a birth. So I went to the library at my school and I checked out all these books on pregnancy and birth. And I put them on the counter and the librarian smiled. She's like, do you have something to tell me? Thinking that I was the one who was pregnant. I said, no, it's me. It's my sister. And she's asked me to be her birth partner. And it's her first baby. And I need to study. I've never done this. And she said, well, maybe you need to hire a doula. And that was the first time I'd heard of that word. I said, I don't know what that is. What's a doula? And she explained it. And as soon as, and her name was Sue Donnelly, the librarian, as soon as Sue explained this, I knew we needed one. I was like, oh, I need one. So I went to my sister with all these books and I said, I'm going to read them. And I'm so excited because I'm going to hire a doula if you're in agreement with this. And I explained and she said, oh, Amy, I don't need a doula. I have you. And I said, well, I need the doula. <laughs> so we hired this amazing doula and she was so incredible for the, you know, the course of that birth. And in the middle of my sister uh, pushing her daughter into this world, the midwife looked at me and said, you would be a good doula. And I just felt all these tears. It just like, 
her words were like an arrow into the heart. And I thought, okay, that's my next path. When I think of birth and death, there's like a Venn diagram that comes alive in my mind. We have two circles, then they overlap. They're not the same. And the care for birth and death isn't identical, but there's enough in common that I think we need to talk about the overlap more. Mm, so what is the overlap? Well, there is, I believe, common skill sets that we can study if we're birth doulas or death doulas that help us strengthen our capacity to show up with compassion and presence, even when things get turned into difficult territory, which birth and death can both do. And even when grief arises, which, you know, birth and death are these deeply transformative um, threshold moments. So grief often will arise in both too. And so the skill sets are really strengthening our capacity to hold space. And then there's like the techniques of how do we touch or how do we speak and what things are helpful and the capacity we have to um, have comfort measures because doulas bring comfort measures. The greatest comfort, however, in my experience, is the presence of an open heart and, and skillful presence that keeps this container around the person or experience um, as safe as possible. When you're helping mothers give birth, what have those experiences taught you about life? Having been witness to a lot of human suffering and even cruelty, you know, some of the moms I've supported were survivors of rape or sexual assault in earlier times in their life. And then their birth of their child, perhaps through a healthy connection, still can open in the body the memory of harm. And then with death, I've been with families where there has not been any reconciliation around harm done. And to have people have to say goodbye when there was so much unsaid. So for what I've learned about life is that what I can control is my own approach, my own attitude, my own inner knowing. And, and I am going to, like we all, I think, do encounter in this story of life tremendous suffering at times. And I can choose to let that shut me down and become cynical and cold, or I can choose to hold it with a love that's stronger than the suffering. And that can be challenging. What I like about you is also your concept of holding space, because it is powerful to be able to hold space, both in giving birth and also in helping the dying. Could you define holding space? Right. Well, it's a term that comes from the work of Heather Plett, who's a comedian author. And she wrote this beautiful reflection on what it means to hold space and eight ways to do it well. It was quite a few years ago, and it, it was a beautiful piece about her mother's death and how the palliative care nurse helped Heather and her sister be supported as they said goodbye to their mom. And part of what holding space means, both drawing from Heather Plett's work and then the work of Alan Wolfelt, who's the director for the Center of 
loss and life transition, who he's also been a great mentor in his writing for me. Um, for me, the way I define holding space, honoring the people who've informed my view is the capacity to bring compassionate presence to what is. And so what is can be awesome. It can be really remarkable, you know, to be with people as they dance or sing or, or to be with people in creative spaces. I teach school. I'm with young people and I'm with fifth and sixth graders through the days in addition to my institute work. And I do that by choice. I do that because I love being with young people and watching them grow into who they can be and creating safe containers for that. And holding space can also mean bringing compassionate presence to deep sorrow and, and even to hold space for people's stories where they've been intentionally harmed. Uh, I feel that the capacity to hold space brings a safe container to either joy or sorrow so that expression can be authentic and safely shared. Yeah, I do want to say to listeners, though, I don't believe it's wise to hold space for active abuse. So to bring compassionate presence to people is so important, and that includes ourselves. So if I'm holding compassionate presence for myself, I will make sure I have good boundaries and not allow myself to be harmed, you know, to, to continue to um, bring compassion to someone who's abusive. I don't think that's wise. So I just want to say that. I like that you clarify that because some people hold space for people who are constantly abusing them. Yes. And in the idea that, you know, let me give them a chance. In the end, it really affects their lives terribly. Yes. And now I've lived through uh, the impact of that personally. So I certainly would, I hope I can draw from my own experience and, and support people uh, who who are drawn to dual work. And I'll say that my experience, Saul, is that people who are drawn to birth work and death work tend to be pretty compassionate and empathic and intuitive people already, generally. Not always, but generally. And pretty sensitive and willing to give. Very service-oriented, very generous people in general. And so I particularly want to create courses in my institute to help individuals with that constitution have healthy boundaries so they don't have to feel that it like putting up with something that's unhealthy is a sign of strength <laughs> because I don't I don't think it is I think it's we don't have to do that <laughs> we don't have to do that so yeah but I like the concept of the post of compassionate presence because for those of us that work in end of life it can be chaotic it can be, first of all, the diagnosis of a terminal illness, which is already chaotic enough for the patient. But then there are also other family dynamics. When you come in as an expert in the home, there's a lot of family dynamics. Sometimes the kids are fighting against each other while mom is dying in the other room. It can be really challenging, you know. Somebody was asking me, how can I come into this chaotic environment and provide that compassionate presence? or that healing presence when everyone, uh, when everything seems so chaotic. Right. No, I've seen that. I've walked into, I remember walking into a hospital room after a, an attempt 
um, a person had attempted to die by suicide and took a knife to his own throat and did not end up dying and had all these stitches in his throat. And I walked in and the mother of this boy was yelling at him, you've shamed our family, you have shamed our family. It was so intense. This, that's what I walked into. I was called by the nursing. We need a chaplain in room, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, so I walk in. I'm like, oh, my God, I've walked into a storm. And so the way I handled it in that moment, and again, I was a student chaplain, and I did have supervisors who supported me, and they helped me process this. Is I, and she turned to me, and she said, don't you see he shamed me? She was just crying. He shamed our family. This was a Korean family. It was a um, older Korean mom and her son was probably in his early twenties. And I said, I see you're in so much pain and I would like to be able to speak to you alone. That's important to me. And first I'd like to be able to be with your son alone if that's possible. So the first thing I did was to like create space for both of those experiences. Cause I want to offer compassionate presence to both. I mean, clearly, I disagreed with her approach. I don't think it was helpful or kind to shame her son who had just almost died. Yet underneath all this rage is probably so much confusing grief in her, right? And she also doesn't want to carry the burden in her social circle. Like my son died by suicide because in that circle, it must be super clearly for her, at least she would have felt very shamed. So I, I wanted to, I didn't want to walk in and be like, you're wrong. What are you doing? You know, how can you speak to your son this way? Like, that's not my role. Although I could feel that in my body. I wanted to defend this boy. But I was successfully able to ask for space. She respected my request and gave me space just to sit with this kid. And in that experience, we didn't say a lot. He just had tears. And I held a hand and, um, and did my best just to be present but a dynamic like that can't be undone with one hospice chaplaincy visit. This is a family dynamic that's possibly generations long, right? And so uh, well, you had said how hard it is when people receive news of a terminal illness. And I remind myself, try to remind myself daily, we all have a terminal um, diagnosis, maybe not of an illness. We won't all die by illness, but we all will die. We all are terminal in this body. So that can be a helpful, humbling reminder. And then I think we all have at times encountered odd or hard family dynamics to some extent. So uh, that's the work for me in the Institute is to create courses for birth and death doulas or people involved in birth and death care to do some of their own inner work so that when we walk into situations like the one I described, I'm not internally traumatized or triggered by that dynamic, that I can walk in with a clear heart, clear mind, compassionate presence, recognize patterns, but not be pulled into them because of my own unresolved patterns. So what you're saying is really important because sometimes our own issues can get in the way of us becoming healers or even holding space. And I think sometimes clinicians don't Either they take it for granted or are not even aware how their issues can get in the way. Right. There's a course they teach called uh, Hungry Ghosts, and it has a strange name, but yeah, Hungry Ghosts. It comes from the Buddhist tradition, this concept that there are these energies in the psyche. And maybe for some Buddhists, they were actually like beings that existed in another dimension. But, but there are parts of us, I think, 
that are hungry for true nourishment, but have turned to look for quick nourishment, either in drugs or alcohol or, you know, promiscuity or all the quick fixes that give a quick high. And sometimes, sometimes the shadow work of caregiving can be a hungry ghost. Like we can avoid ourselves by giving so much to others, if that makes sense. And so I've met people who are really deeply powerful caretakers, but it's almost like controlling caretaking rather than, you know, doing the inner work of their own unresolved story. So I love what you said, Saul, about how a big piece of this work in terms of chaplaincy is our own self-care, self-reflection throughout our journey as chaplains, throughout. There's this need to constantly, I think, look inside and say, what am I bringing to this story? And if I'm feeling a trigger in my body where I start to sweat or my heart starts beating fast or I have memories of my own life, those are wonderful clues that will help me do more inner work. They don't have to be seen as obstacles. They can be great teachers. They can teach me where I still have work to do in myself. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. Before the break, we were talking about how clinicians can get into destructive practices. These are really compassionate people. But due to a lack of proper self-care, they go through a lot of moral injury. Could you talk to us about that? Yes, thank you for highlighting this. It's, it's key to consider the impact of um, compassion fatigue and the profound impact on the nervous system of a person to constantly be exposed to crisis or stress. You know, my partner works in mental health in something called, uh, he's a first responder for, for a mobile crisis. So whenever in our community here in Asheville, North Carolina, the police or a school or maybe um, a jail or a hospital may call mobile crisis and say, we have a person in crisis right now. We need mobile crisis to arrive. And he does a specific kind of mental health training to de-escalate as much as he can. And then to assess, does this person need to be institutionalized right now for support or can they be safely um, woven into kind of a care plan? And so I see the impact of dealing with mobile crisis on his nervous system every day. He does such an incredible job. And to come home after being with people in some of their hardest days. You know, literally for that individual, it could have been their hardest day and he's there. And then he, another person has their hardest day and he's there. And then, and that's a different kind of care than chaplaincy because this mobile crisis is, is, is very acute care. But chaplaincy can expose us to crisis situations. And I know for myself as a chaplain, I have seen 
you know, a body died by murder, bodies died by suicide. I've seen families grieving. I've been with families through a lot of very deep pain. And that's in the hospital chaplaincy setting. Uh, and so the effect on my nervous system is real. I have a nervous system and I'm sensitive and I feel, and I want to keep my nervous system open. I want to expand my zone of tolerance so that I'm not moving into hyperarousal, like hyperaroused states where I can't sleep well or I'm nervous or my nervous system is needing like a quick adrenaline fix to just function well or hypo arousal where I shut down, where I depress, where I disconnect, where I'm like cutting off my feelings. So I think a chaplain's, a chaplain's task and work is to be aware of best research done right now on how to expand that zone of tolerance in our nervous system. So those patterns you're describing that are destructive um, are less, they become less tempting to develop into habits. Um, we might go out and have a drink here or there, that's fine. But if we're coming home from work every night and getting tanked, you know, and then getting up and having to have five cuts of coffee to be able to go back to it, that's something that tells, it's a clue. It says something about the state of our nervous system. So there's so much research about breath and the power of breath. So even just right now, if everyone's listening, just pause and with me, just perhaps put the hand on the heart, or if you're driving, don't close your eyes, but just pause and take a breath in. And let that breath exhale. And then one more time, breathe in. And release. that power to slow down. Just that power to pause. And that can help us reset and come back to our zone of tolerance. And so when I worked with people, uh, I remember working with a woman who was very scared before a surgery. She had this really large abdominal tumor that weighed like 30 pounds. It's a huge tumor. She was so worried and cried a lot about it. And so I just held her hand and we breathed. We did what I just did, but we did it for a while. And that helps my nervous system also calm with her. Like we co-regulated our neural network. So our, our bodies were able to settle and she was able to express her fears through tears. And I didn't have to fix it. I'm not there to fix it. I'm there to companion her. I can't fix the tumor. I can't make it go away and I can't fix her fear around it. I can just hold her hand and say, you're not alone in this fear and I'll breathe with you in this fear. So my thought is self-care means integrating into our lives best practice, research proven best practice that is woven into daily patterns of living that keep our nervous system in that zone of tolerance. So, you know, all of these addictive patterns become less tempting. We don't really get tempted by them because we're, our nervous system is, is solidly rooted in the now. I think meditation could really help with that. Could you talk to us about meditation? 
well, why don't we practice for a moment together? Because I think that to talk about meditation and not practice is like talking about swimming, but not getting in the water. <laughs> so I could go to the library with you, Sal. We could go to the library and get all the books out of the shelves that have to do with swimming and become experts, intellectual experts about swimming. But if neither of us ever get in and like actually move in the water and practice and breathe and laugh and swim and race and challenge ourselves to feel the body move in water, it's just an intellectual concept. And so chaplaincy is in the body. We're not intellectualizing death. We're not reading stories of death and it's somewhere else. We're in the room. We're with the person. We see the dead body. We hold the hands of the crying spouse. It's very physical. And so it's like being in the water. And so right now, if you can, just sit tall. Your body sit tall. If you are driving while listening to this, please keep your eyes open. But still, you can practice awareness of the body. And whatever faith you are, Muslim, Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, or atheist, in view around religion, this practice of breath meditation, I believe, can be something to try since we all breathe. And so just notice right now how the inhale comes into your belly and how it can soften your shoulders down your back. And let the exhale, let the exhale out with a gratitude. Thank you for this exhale. And breathing in. Sending the breath to any muscles that might feel tight or scared. Exhale, a softness around that without needing to fix it. Just breathe around it. Inhale. Exhale and find your own rhythm. Noticing muscles around your eyes and your mouth, the back of your head. Noticing muscles in the hands and feet. And feeling the breath breathe in you. Let the breath breathe. Feel the compassion and the presence of the breath. And taking the time to notice if the inhale can be a little longer, if the exhale can be a little longer. And noticing your heart rate. And taking one more breath in and out. And when you're ready, if you did close your eyes, you can open them. Just notice how that feels to pause, to get in the water. Powerful. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. 
It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Soleil and we continue our conversation with Amy. How did you begin to incorporate meditation into your life? Well, like I said, I really love books. And when I was 16 years old, as a high school student in Utah, I found a book at my library called The Joy Within. I remember the title. And it was uh, The Joy Within. And it was a book about meditation. Uh, I would... I would say the majority of the chapters had to do with visualization as a form of meditation. So the authors wrote um, these guided visualizations, like imagine yourself in a forest or imagine yourself at the beach and notice, you know, they would engage the five senses and then bring the awareness to a place of calm. I loved this book. Now I was growing up in a home that was not calm. My mother was struggling a lot. My dad was struggling a lot. I was struggling a lot. And, you know, I had a boyfriend at the time who was trying to talk me into dropping out of school and moving to Las Vegas with him. And he had a big mohawk and a big attitude. And I was like, no, it's a bad idea. Don't do it, Amy. And I didn't. And I school was always my ticket out. I loved study and I loved learning. And so I earned good grades and I stayed true to school. And I got a great scholarship and I, at the age of 17, went to college in Oregon. And in um, the offerings for, let's say, athletic offerings that the school offered, there was a class for yoga. And I signed up and it was this short Catholic mom of five kids. She had five kids and she was this short Catholic lady who taught yoga. And I thought she was such a character. I really liked her. And... That was my first time having someone guide me in meditation. You know, so I read this book in high school and I tried to practice it on my own and I did my best. However, when I went to college and I started taking regular yoga classes where we'd move our body and then we would meditate, uh, that was my first taste into that like deeper quiet. And I kept nourishing that practice throughout my whole life. So I'm 48. I think that was when I was 18, 17, 18. So 30 years of practice, I would say almost daily. And it helped me expand my zone of tolerance, right? And I still have my growth edges. I definitely have places where I struggle. I, I find that those places can be great teachers. Well said. You're also the founder of the Institute for the Study of Path, Breath, and Death. Could you talk to us about your institute? Sure. I, I really am grateful for this institute. It's become a great platform for many to meet each other. I started it in 2000, I think it was 2015. So I had been invited to speak at the Midwives Alliance of North America conference in St. Louis that year. I brought my boy who was three years old or so at the time, he was a young kiddo. And I spoke to a group of midwives and the topic was what can people in birth care learn from people who work with the dying? 
So I, because I had been trained in both, you know, as a, as a caretaker, a chaplain, and a doula in both. And I had written my book, Birth, Breath, and Death, um, two years before. So they had asked me to come and speak. And that conversation with these incredible midwives, right, from all over, Midwives Alliance of North America, uh, really changed me. And I wanted to create more places where these kind of conversations could happen, where people who work with birth could speak with people who work with death, and that cross-fertilization could be nourishing for their personal and professional growth. So I created the Institute in 2015 with the intention to create a platform for personal and professional growth and that cross-fertilization between birth and death work. And I added breath because, of course, you can't have birth and death without breath. And the practice of conscious living is, uh, is key to both, both bookends of life. And now, seven years later, we have almost 1,000 members, active members. Right now, as we speak, we have over 3,300 people enrolled in one of the Institute courses. We have a wide variety of courses, a wide variety of teachers committed to anti-racism work, committed to LGBTQ equity, committed to uh, that important um, task of creating brave, safe space to do that dive into ourselves that we've been talking about, that self-care dive, and also to strengthen our capacity to hold compassion and presence. That's the goal. That's the Institute. And it's doing very well. It is. No, it's doing great. Yeah. We have like 50,000 followers on Facebook, which feels great for me because I want, I want social media to be an engine of positivity and insight. It doesn't have to always be an engine of kind of the lowest common denominator. It can be used in a good way, I hope. What is the role of ritual in birth, breath, and death? It's hard to imagine birth and death existing without ritual. Uh, even if it's um, whether faith-based or secular. I, ritual is the intentional act of um, bringing meaning to a moment, you know, to, to, to connect our practices and our beliefs together in these moments of deep meaning. So for instance, I've been with Muslim families and they have a ritual to whisper the adhan, the the call to prayer in the ear of a newborn. So it's the first thing the baby hears is the call to prayer. I love that. So beautiful. And you know, when, when Muslims die, it's the last thing that's whispered in the ear too. And so for Christians, they have rituals, Jews, Muslims, um, Hindus, Buddhists, and people of their own traditions. Uh, and people who, who are humanists, who think this life ends with death, can still and often do weave deep, meaningful rituals into their stories. So the Institute has courses that help people understand ritual and help people create ritual. For instance, we just did a course called Rituals for Menopause because that's a big change in a woman's life to not have her periods, to not to, to shift from being fertile to a time of, of um of not being able to get pregnant, but then you have all these years ahead where, where your life can shift in deep transformative ways and that nourishing energy can become more contained within and nourishing different gifts. So that was a great course. We had about 45 women from around the world 
And we created a ritual at the end for our own menopause. It was so cool. So that's an example of things that the Institute does. Beautiful. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, I have an email address. <laughs> and you can also follow um, the Institute on Facebook. You can read my books, which are sold on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or maybe in your library. I wrote a book called Birth, Breath, and Death, and Saul, you mentioned that. My most recent book was called, or is called, Holding Space on Loving, Dying, and Letting Go. And my website is birthbreathanddeath.com. So always feel free to reach out. And, and please know that there's scholarships available. There's so many opportunities for people to, to plug in. Um, I had a doula organization in Michigan reach out recently, and it's a, a doula collective of indigenous and um, Latinx doulas who are primarily Spanish-speaking doulas, and they said, we, we want to be connected to the Institute. We have um, doulas who want to train in pregnancy loss, and, and is there a way we can work out some kind of scholarship for our community? And it was so awesome and easy to do. So if you're listening to this and you feel inspired or you have some wheels turning about, oh, I want to get connected and there's ways to connect, please reach out. What are your final thoughts? <laughs> oh, Saul, I'm just so glad to meet you. I am grateful you do this show. I would love to interview you for the Institute webinar about your story. Uh, my final thought would be, if you come home after a hard day of chaplaincy work and play video games, it's okay. Just notice it. And then notice if you do it the next day, and that's okay. And maybe on the third or fourth day, make a different choice and go out in the mountains and maybe have a good cry for all the people you just held space for and let your nervous system reset and find ways to nourish that bandwidth so it expands and be gentle with yourself because everyone listening to this who's involved in death care to me is a hero and I hope that you be gentle with yourself. Thank you very much. That was Emmy Wright Glenn and thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.